If you were in any way surprised by Donald Trump's victory in 2016, or if you are in any way concerned about the tone, direction, and temperament of political discourse in this country, or if you feel even slightly freaked out about the current state of affairs, you will love meeting my guest, Joel Stein. Joel Stein was a columnist at Time Magazine for 19 years and writes for the Los Angeles Times and has now written literally one of the funniest books I've ever read. It's called In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You Are Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. Joel and I met several years ago when he gave a TEDx Stanford talk, and I will link to that talk. It's awesome in my show notes. And if you're not already receiving those show notes, you need to get over to bronwyncommunications.com and sign up. They're awesome. Anyway, I met Joel several years ago when he was giving his TEDx talk. And for a long time, God, several years, I was the speaking coach for all of the TEDx speakers at Stanford. And while I met dozens of incredible human beings during that time, as you can imagine, none were as funny as Joel Stein. I was beyond grateful that in between interviews with Vanity Fair and NPR and Goop, Joel Skyped in to talk to me about his new book. But don't let the title fool you. In Defense of Elitism is not a parody or satire. It's a wholehearted, intellectually curious, clear-eyed exploration of why populism versus elitism or gut instinct versus expertise has become the biggest philosophical cage fight of our time. I don't often get to talk to my favorite writers, but when I do, I try and record them for you. This is definitely one of those times. Enjoy. I love how the book opens with, I feel like our generation, our like, where were you when Kennedy was shot moment is where were you when you found out Donald Trump was going to be president? It it was my JFK being shot for sure. And I love, what's classic is Chelsea Handler's new book that just came out. I'm listening to on Audible and like Donald Trump becoming president is the inciting action that drives her into therapy. Like, I feel like all of us- Really? Yes, our consciousness like split in two when that moment happened. And what I felt so badly for you is that, you know, I was the person who the news had to be broken to as the polls were, you know, as the states were coming in state by state by my husband. But you were the guy with the spreadsheet who saw it before everybody else. Yeah. And I was at a party full of highly educated, super political people. I was at this party right down the street where I walked to that Stephanie Miller, who's a liberal radio host was throwing. And so there were a lot of people there who were really knowledgeable about politics, but it it seemed so clear that day that Hillary Clinton was going to win. They were kind of just celebrating and talking and drinking and not paying attention. And I had brought this bottle of Trump sparkling wine, his Blanc de Blanc. And I was like, I I was planning to like open it and celebrate and like mock him with his attempt to be an elitist with his fake champagne. And, and you so proud of yourself that you had a bottle of tr- so uh, Blanc de Blanc for this exact moment, right? Someone had given it to me as like a joke gift. And I have actually drank it before. And uh, it's not as bad as you would think, I hate to say. But it's not. Well, you know, it's certainly overpriced and not great, but it will be. <laughs> but I think, you know, to me, what, what's cool about this book is I think it's really smart. I think it's smart political discourse, but doesn't take itself too seriously. And you don't take yourself too seriously, but it's all the stuff that if 
if liberal people like me, and I have to come out of the closet on this episode that I am super liberal, I try to like be neutral because I want, I want the tent to be big enough for us all to fit. But like every argument you make and every reaction you have, you allow yourself to have it despite how snobby or crazy or elite it sounds like. And I just, I appreciated that you were saying things out loud that I thought like, for example, when Trump won, I was like, wow, I guess all of the, you know, uneducated people got to the polls, which is so embarrassing to admit that I actually thought that it's so embarrassing because it's so much more complicated than that. And it's important, I think, if we want the elite to continue ruling the world with some expertise instead of just people doing it from their gut and people doing it in a corrupt way, I think we need to separate elite thoughts that are correct and elite thoughts that are incorrect. And that definitely falls in the bucket of incorrect. The average Trump voter was not just voting against their interests and stupid and needs to be informed. Like, that's not what happened. That is not what happened. In fact, my favorite, favorite, favorite line, it's on page 61 and it is highlighted, Joel. I would like you to know. It says uh, a few other comments about the news make it clear that the main difference between the people of Miami, Texas and me is that they believe there is only one right and one wrong and they're always right. Whereas I believe there is a shifting multidimensional matrix between right and wrong and I'm always right. (laughs) Like, that's it. That's that. That is the premise. So that, that's the real difference. I think that is a true difference of, of people who see the world as uh, black and white and people who see a lot of continuum, uh, which I think puts you in the bucket of the intellectual elite. It's not that we ever come to the conclusion that we're wrong. So, so that's I think that's a difference that you have to kind of watch out for, too. That's exactly right. So so the book opens, you're like, you're having your like, oh my God, how did this happen moment? And you decide to go right into the heart of Trump country. And one of my favorite moments is when you're standing at the door of the bed and breakfast you're going to stay in, in the, in the deep part of Texas, and your heart is pounding. Can you like take us back to that moment? Why, why was your heart pounding? And what were you doing there? We're not in a moment when populists, you know, Trump voters trust the media. So setting a lot of the stuff up that I wanted to do was much harder than it would have been in 2015. Like people just don't respond. People really think you're the enemy and it's really hard to win them over. It was really hard for me to get in touch with anyone in this town, which admittedly is a tiny town called Miami, Texas in the panhandle of Texas up near Oklahoma. It's a tiny town. It's hard to get in touch with them. The mayor Chad Breeding was kind of occasionally responding to me and and being friendly, but I I was very nervous about going down there. And I thought like no one was going to talk to me. And I I have just social anxiety in general. (laughs) I was very nervous about going to this tiny rural town and trying to find people who will talk to me and not hate me. Plus this town, because it has the highest percentage of Trump voters in the country, right after the election, CNN came down twice. And the people there I knew really didn't like what CNN did because CNN, to me, it looked fine. But CNN interviewed like someone at there isn't a supermarket in this town, but there's like a convenience type store. And they interviewed the clerk there. And there is a gas station. And they interviewed the guy working at the gas station. And so this town felt like by making those choices, they made them look like they didn't have much money or were that educated by picking those two people. They were reinforcing the stereotype I had right after the election, right? Right. Yeah, I guess so. And to me, without worrying about that, if you came to L.A. and talked to a clerk at a gas station, that would be fine. Like, that seems representative to me. But they felt like they were purposely doing that. And so they, so they, in addition to their natural distrust of the media, 
uh, and someone who worked at Time Magazine, which they view as a very liberal publication, yeah. you know, they had this experience at CNN. So I was getting in this door and I just expected, you know, I had read Hillbilly Elegy. So oh, I was picturing, God. you do that? Yes. I was getting to this door and I just pictured like some methed out mama with a lack of teeth and a shotgun. I was just very nervous. <laughs> And you make this point that, like, you're probably the only Jewish person in the entire town, and that causes you great alarm as well. But then what happens? What What is your experience like in that town? So the woman who opens this door saves my butt. Her name's Diane Barkhalder. And immediately when she opens the door, she's a little older than me. She's got this cool haircut. She's got several earrings in each ear and, like, very hipster Brooklyn sunglasses, especially for someone her age. And she's on the phone, her cell phone, her smartphone, uh, when she answers the phone, the door. And she's on like a conference call with Rodan and Fields. Which you know is, not chic, by the way, that is no like lowbrow Mary Kay vibe. That's expensive stuff. Oh, is it? I, all I know about it is that like I have cousins who are always trying to foist it upon me. Like it okay, seems like some kind cheap. of multi-level marketing campaign thing, right? Yeah, yeah. But it just seems so non-rural and suburban in the middle of this place where I'd seen no anything except cows for many miles. That was it was shocking. That's amazing. That's amazing. And and the t- and she actually hooks you up and dials you in to a ton of people in that town who oh, you see to have to have you know, direct conversation about some really triggering stuff, especially around race. I mean, there are moments in that book where I, my stomach was upset just imagining whether I could do what you did, which is sit face to face and hear these people say so, some things that make a ton of sense and some things that are so fucking racist, it makes your head explode. Yeah. Well, I had the advantage of being super racist myself. <laughs> I mean, it's all easier for me. You'd have trouble. <laughs> no, we're, but that's what, part of what's hilarious. Liberal elites realize we're all actually racist. We're just trying oh. to overcome it. Oh, the things I heard in Manhattan from like limousine liberals that were so racist without knowing it were insane, right? And they're, they think they're saying something nice and it's just a, the most awful thing. So yeah, I do not think I have a, a clue about my own racism, partly because I did this cool thing for a column for time a long time ago, where there's this neurologist, I'm gonna mess up his name, he's so famous, David Eagleton, is that his Ooh. name? He put he put people in an MRI machine and then showed them photographs of hands being either not left alone or being pricked with a needle. And under each hand, he would write like Muslim or Jewish or white or whatever. And when you saw your own identity group being pricked, your brain pain would light up much higher than other groups. And it was a great way to measure how racist you are. Yeah. So I asked him if I could do it. And he put me in there. And I was, uh, I was pretty much exactly, exactly average in racism. Unbelievable. Yeah. And that's, it's, and that's one of the things that I really loved about that book is, um, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of managing all of these different levels in these conversations with people outside of your bubble, which is like, we, you know, you can't really judge them for being racist because everybody's a little racist, but at the same time, you're trying to hear them out without not, not standing up against racism. Like it's so, there's so many layers, like as a communication person, like I just kept thinking, 
How did you manage all of the internal machinations of reactions and still keep that quiet enough to ask good questions and keep probing? Oh, well, okay. I think that's just like experience being a reporter. Yeah. Or kind of personality. Like whenever I watch a movie that has a reporter, I remember watching Blood Diamonds, if that's what that movie was called. And the, the main character was Leonardo DiCaprio would be interviewing someone and they would be like confessing something horrible. And then he would yell at them for their immorality. And I was like, oh, you're seeing your knowledge of journalism on like Sunday morning talk shows, which is performative. But if you're an actual journalist trying to get information and interview people, like your goal is to get people to tell you things, not to judge them. And not lie, but a lot of, yeah, and uh-huh. That's the Howard Stern genius. Yeah. He's so good at it that someone will start saying something insane that they've done and he totally normalizes it. Yeah, yeah, which makes them go deeper and give you the whole scoop. Yeah, you, and that's just true in conversation. You're not going to get a good conversation in general if, you, if you're judging instead of making people feel comfortable. And I think this is what I found so interesting, and, and we'll get to the, the, the main argument of the book, which is populism versus elitism, expertise versus just gut, right? Yeah. What I, um, what I loved is that you're sort of guide, you're sort of showing a person grappling with how can you hold both things at the same time? These are good people that you connected with that you like that are smart and that are not anything like the stereotypes in a lot of ways, some ways they are. And, and you think they're profoundly mistaken about certain things. And we have to, you know, what I loved about where you sort of end up is like the way forward is to be able to hold both things at the same time. I mean, in those moments, were you grappling with the fact that like, God, I love these people, but Jesus, I really think they're wrong about a couple of things here. Or like, what was your emotional state after these interviews? Because we're elitists, I'm going to reference an elitist, Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem, where mm-hmm. she comes up with the phrase, the banality of evil. Mm-hmm. Eichmann's an okay dude. Eichmann has Jewish friends. Like the whole idea that like, if we just introduce people to people who are different from them, they will become more accepting isn't entirely true. If you give people a sense of purpose, and that sense of purpose means kicking out all the foreigners from your country to improve your tribe, and that's your sense of purpose, then you can do some pretty horrible things, especially if it's just requires no more than pulling a lever when you vote. I did not think the experience of living in Miami, Texas, which in many ways is 30 years behind the cities in our country, and yet requires some amount of globalism to give them the stuff they buy at Walmart and their smartphones and the Rodan and Fields cell phone calls to live in the world that I think they do want to live in for the most part. Requires a knowledge and experience that they don't have. Some of what they're voting on is indeed good for them because they feel like Austin and Washington are passing laws that don't consider them, which is often very true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But even greater extent, they want to pass laws that don't consider on some level themselves and certainly the rest of the world. So so we need to convince people of the values of globalism and, you know, games that aren't zero sum, which are very confusing to people. So, Um, yeah, I don't think they should be voting on our lives at all and probably not even on their lives because their towns are kind of falling apart. These small rural towns. That's right. So, So their way isn't working, actually, it turns out. No, Miami, Texas is not getting, I mean, partly just because of the collapse of oil and gas prices, but because that's where most of their incomes comes from. They're not pulling enough taxes, but also people are just not living there in numbers. They're shrinking population and they, they're not going to be able to pay for their sewer, their sewer system, you know, in a couple, in a decade or two. So yeah, yeah, I worry about them as much as they 
should worry about us. You know, it's funny when I was just reading like the, the Sarah Palin example you use of sort of that populist, like I'm not an elitist and I will never pretend that, you know, I know more than the next guy, but I'd rather be me than them kind of vibe. And you're like, oh, Sarah, there's a third way where you can actually just study and learn and get smarter about something. Um, when I was thinking about that- The sort arrogance of, of that is oh, insane. Cause the that, arrogance isn't like, I'm just a normal person. Therefore, I should be a heartbeat away from the leader of the free world. It's like, no, wait, you sh- that's pretty arrogant to think yeah. you just like have natural that you, anyone can do it or that you have some kind of natural special ability that requires you not to read a newspaper. To me, that arrogance is way worse than the smugness of elitists. Well, I think it's more dangerous for sure. Yeah. sure. But I did have to think like as I was as I was reading that and just thinking about populism versus elitism, there's something in populism that's like just kind of brokenhearted. Like we tried to trust you and y'all made mistakes. So we're we're taking all the power back. It's like that moment when you realize your parents are smoking weed. You know, you're like, oh, my God, is nothing yeah. sacred? How can I even trust you as my parents? But like it's like I almost wonder if, if that kind of reaction is just like the existential sadness you experience when you realize that even the smartest people get it wrong sometimes. And we have to just face that. I love that you said that because I feel like I tried to say that in the book and didn't say it as well. But there, there, I think there is a moment in adulthood, especially as you get older and the president is like the same age as you. Oh, God. You're like, <laughs> like oh, wait, that's just, I mean, now that it's Trump, I think it's obvious, but yeah. or maybe not because he was famous and, and maybe you put him on a pedestal in a different way. But you get to a point where you're like, oh, the president, the boss, my parents are just people and they have some experience, but not as much as I thought they did. And they're kind of having to make it up as they go along. And that's a scary moment. And I think You'd much rather believe in a conspiracy theory where there are a bunch, a bunch of like evil, selfish, corrupt people who can control everything and know what they're doing. The other thing I want to ask you your opinion on, because I, you know, in my intro, <laughs> if I do a good job, I will make it abundantly clear when I recorded that I am not, I don't ever coach anybody that has anything to do with politics because it's not my bag. That doesn't make sense to me because your bag is teaching people how to tell their story or express themselves. And you're, you're the best at it that I've ever met, honestly. Um, and you're so good at telling stories. I listened to that story you told about a ham sandwich. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it, it was the way, not just the writing of that story, but the way the enthusiasm and confidence, like I'm, I was just so jealous. And oh. it took me like a day of anger and jealousy to be like, it was just a ham sandwich. <laughs> what I was like, screw her. I need to like write that that compliment on the fridge and look at it every day for a few days. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. But the reason is, Joel, and I had a conversation with a friend who's very much involved in politics in D.C. And I was kind of talking about my my method, which is very much, you know, relying on authenticity and not having a script. It's bullet points and allowing spontaneity, spontaneity to guide you from a place of deep authenticity. And it was so funny. He looked at me and he's like, "Okay, okay, California. Like that shit doesn't work here. But that was before this election. And I have to ask you your opinion on this. From my perspective, to me, this is what you get when you run candidates on logos and not any emotion, right? One candidate was super, quote unquote, authentic seeming, knew how to tap into emotion and played into people's sort of deep gut instinct emotion 
you know, network. And the other candidate was really thoughtful, super smart, nuanced, understands problems, didn't know how to play the emotional game. And I feel like politics led us to this point because they kept trying to divorce. Like, I feel like the Democrats are amazing, but we can't fucking get it together when it comes to infusing emotion into the dialogue. We suck at it. I think we were living in a long period of neoliberalism where both parties in our country were having a pretty nuanced debate about how much capitalism and how much socialism we yeah. should have. Like how much capitalism to dip in your socialism or socialism, different capitalism. <laughs> and then much of the world, especially the Western world, had a very different debate that Trump really, after watching enough Fox News, galvanized, which was a much more emotional debate about who should be an American. What, what should America's role be in the world? And it's a very nationalist, very... Like, are we pussies or not, right? Yeah, like, do we want, <laughs> is the, do we want this republic or do we want an authoritarian government? They're really basic questions. Like, do we want foreigners or do we want, you know, only people who have lived here for the last, you know, families who have lived here for the last two generations? Do we want um, a Western culture or do we want a multicultural culture? Do we want to trade with other countries or do we want to make everything here? Like these are real questions that are emotional questions about who you are. And my, I remember writing a column during the election when everyone was saying, this is the dumbest election ever because we have an idiot who's insulting people on a stage and there's, but I was like, no, this is the first election I've ever been part of where you were voting about something important, like deeply important. Yeah, I, no, I thought it was like, oh, we're finally getting to the stuff that has been bubbling to the surface. Oh, my God, that's so interesting. Why do you think we were also blindsided by that shift in narrative? Like I was I was, you know, part of it's because I live in Northern California. I mean, the bubble couldn't be thicker around here. But why were we so blindsided, Joel? Well, first of all, it was there's some tipping point aspect to it. It's not like Sarah Palin or Pat Buchanan or. um you know, this has been going on for so long. I, I trace it at least in our country back to Andrew Jackson. This yes, whole, you yeah, know, love that. Long. We can name populist figures who failed, you know, forever. And this one succeeded. So there's some randomness to it. There's also like a, a little bit of a boiling frog aspect to it in that whatever change people are freaked out about right now, and some historian will explain it, but some massive change occurred. I don't know if it's people moving to cities. I don't know if it's the, the knowledge economy. I don't know if it's uh, globalism in general or immigration, but some either combination or one of those things caused a great change that yeah. people felt like, like we don't think of gay marriage, for instance, as a great change. We don't think of the Me Too movement as a great change, but they're great changes. And, massive, yeah. and people who feel like oh, I'm a straight man and I can't express normal straight man stuff anymore. I feel closeted yes. and disempowered. And it used to be, I used to be, if I'm a good guy, my buddy can get me a job. And now I have to compete against random people from, you know, all kinds of races from all kinds of places. And they have an advantage. Like, you're angry. Yes, right. And, and right. it's that anger that, that I think is propelling a lot of this. Yeah, it, it makes sense. It's actually going to be very interesting. I'm just thinking about it. Some historian will write and tell us what happened, but it's fascinating to, to think of it from the future's perspective. Like, it's, what, it's, what happened? It also makes you realize 
how bogus historic history is that we read in school. Cause like when you live through a moment of history, it's so unclear and vague. And yeah. then someone writes something like the civil war was caused by an economic difference between the North and South. And that's what I was taught in school. And it turns out, no, it was probably because of slavery, but yes, yeah, some historian just like stamps it and then it becomes conventional wisdom. And it's probably way more complicated than we're being presented. But I, I want to like, without any spoilers, cause I literally, I think everybody needs to read this book. It's so good. But where you kind of, um, guide the reader towards is like, you go through the arc of like, great. Should we just create a third party? Okay. No. Should we just completely disengage? Okay. Probably not. But what are we like, what's her best shot forward, Joel? Because I don't feel great about shutting Trump lovers out of my life. I'm not interested in that. I'm also not interested in like hanging out and accepting when people say racist remarks. Like, what is the way forward, Joel? Yeah. First of all, do you really have any Trump loving friends? I do. Well, Hold on. Is that true? Yes. Yes. They're not super close friends, but they're acquaintances that I find very dear to me. And I have family members. I mean, coming out my ears. I'm a Jew and I I don't have, I don't have any. Well, the disengagement strategy is the only way to survive those relationships because there's just no winning. But yeah, it's pretty intense. Like my kids will just rail against like Trump voters. And I'm like, you guys, I, I get it. And you're right. But like, I think that's, that's a bad instinct because it makes you feel morally superior and it gives you a rush of anger. It becomes like sports radio, just a rail yes. to the other side. Oh my and, God. and you can tell like the one fun, not fun at all. One interesting thing about Trump being president is I really know which of my friends are the angriest right now. Like as people, not about Trump, just like, oh, wow, this is a really good vehicle for your anger. Like everything you're saying is probably accurate, but but you're just an angry person. So I would say that the one thing I think that I should curtail myself and probably a lot of other members of the elite is our smugness. That that instinct we talked about at the beginning, which was like, if we could just explain to these people why this is in their benefit and it'll improve their, their economic situation, they will listen. They're just not informed. I think that's the kind of smugness that gets us nowhere. And instead of just yelling at someone when they express something, even if it is racist, yeah, like just labeling them as racist without any other thoughts in their head or reasons for voting is wrong, at least on the voting side. I mean, yes, poor black people did not vote for Donald Trump. However, there are a lot of Obama voters who did vote for Donald Trump. And so I think we have to, and this is not just happening in America. This is happening in clearly England in almost in all of Europe on all over the place. place. So, so just dismissing it as racism isn't wholly inaccurate, but it's not. not And it's not constructive, right? Constructive. I'd rather listen to someone about what their grievances are. And instead of saying, what are you crazy? You're a white man. You have everything of all the advantages is to think about their situation. Look, you notice acceleration, not speed. So they're noticing a change and a a diminishment of the power of white Christians in America. It's true. And to say that's not legitimate because you still have all the power, maybe that's a a fair statement, but it's not what you experience emotionally. Like that's like saying your life is good. So you should never be depressed. That's exactly right. It's not how human beings are, unfortunately. 
That's exactly right. It sucks right now because it's such an outrage culture that we're so afraid of ideas because if they can be dismissed as racist or sexist or neoliberal or pro this or anti-Hillary or whatever the hell it is, we say a thing and then the outrage comes instead of being like an open environment where we can say ideas out loud and discuss them instead of protesting, shutting it down. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's this outrage culture is really invigorating and exciting, but it sucks for idea exchange. It's a very blunt tool. Like it's a, it, it, it's not that it's ineffective. Like if you cancel someone, so it's a, it's a really blunt tool. It's not a great tool for bringing people together or or understanding someone else or changing, changing anything besides behavior. Yeah. Cause you want to change ideas because people vote silently. So yeah, I'm not a huge fan of cancel culture for that reason. I know. I agree. Well, so let me just close this one last question, Joel. Is there hope for us? (laughs) Like, Do you see a future in which we can all actually work together and govern better and, and, and balance, you know, all of these different things we're trying to balance. I mean, that's why I wrote this book because we don't know. Like, I should not be writing a book about politics, right? I should be writing a book <laughs> about, at best, like raising a child or my marriage, or you know, I'm just a humor columnist at best. <laughs> so, but I do feel like if I have, if I'm going to write a book, I feel or write a column, I have some responsibility, or I feel some responsibility to talk about this right now because we are living. In a, in a very tense moment in history and it can go either way. Like I used to, when I was growing up and being taught over and over again about the Holocaust in Hebrew school, yeah. I remember thinking like, they, why are they so dumb? Why didn't they leave Germany? And now, now that I'm living through history, I see, Oh, you just don't know which way this will break. This could be McCarthyism and break really fast and yeah. go back to normal. Yeah. Or this could be the dark ages. And you've got like centuries of this ahead of you. Like, I don't know. It we go- don't know. It's, it's the frog boiling thing. We just don't know how hot the water is, right? Well, it's more than that. You really legitimately don't know what will happen next. It's not preordained at all. So you don't know if the stove is just going to be taken up, you know, shut off or turned up. Yeah. it's And that's why I, I love Margaret Atwood. I love everything about her. But I have to be really careful about how much Margaret Atwood I read right now because she could be totally right in like five minutes, you know? Yeah. As Margaret Atwood things come true, comes true, you are definitely, you have nothing to worry about. You're going to be one of those women who, uh, who run the household with, <laughs> with, her, with her commander guy, the commander's wife. That's totally you. You're oh, fine. totally, completely. What's her name? Like Aunt Martha or something? That'll be me. Bitch, get oh. in line. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Joel.